Well, in the announcements a few uh, minutes ago, it was noted that I recently wrote a paper entitled How the Supreme Court's Same-Sex Marriage Ruling Will Affect the Church. And I wrote it because the day of the decision, I downloaded the decision which is posted on the Supreme Court website. There's 103 pages, including the opinion and the dissenting uh, justices' opinions. And I, I, when I read it, I was so uh, interested and sobered by it and simply what the dissenting justices are saying as to the impact of the decision and the way it was made that I uh, decided to write something about it. But there's one quote in it that particularly stands out to me. It's in the dissent by Justice Antonin Scalia, and he's making the point that at any point in time, society will make decisions that an individual citizen may disagree with, Society does things, even the government does things that we don't necessarily all find to be right or comfortable. But then he writes, It is of overwhelming importance, however, who it is that rules me. Today's decree says that my ruler and the ruler of 320 million Americans coast to coast is a majority of the nine lawyers on the Supreme Court. Now, his point has to do with binding the conscience of people and the ways in which the decision was made. But in the sentence I just quoted, he two times capitalizes the word ruler. And when you read it, my ruler, this decision says, and the ruler of 320 Americans, million Americans, it's something that we only do when we're referring to God. That's how it strikes you when you read the sentence, and that was obviously intentional. Because what he's saying is that the way that this decision was made is an active usurping of the role of God in human society. And um, it's rather unsettling, given the fact that it's not written by a firebrand. It's written by one of the justices of the Supreme Court. The point I want to make this morning has nothing to do with sexual morality or... um, same-sex marriage in particular, or anything like that. I just want to ask the same question that really comes out of that. I want to underline his first sentence. It is of overwhelming importance, however, who it is rules me. And ask you, who rules you? Who rules your life? Is it society and its changing values as time goes on? Is it your education or things that uh, teachers and professors tell you? Is it Hollywood and the standards that they portray endlessly and that we imbibe endlessly? Is it yourself, the decisions you're forced to make day by day that rules you, or is it God? Now, Jesus says quite clearly in the passages I just read that God ought to rule in human life. The passage is entitled in most Bibles, The Cost of Discipleship. Those titles, like over this paragraph, are added by translators to help us to follow as we read the story, give us a sense of the content of each of the sections of the Bible. But Jesus asserts in what was read that the cost of discipleship is incredibly high. He says that the cost of following him is so high that even your closest family members your nearest relatives whom you love and care for must become a distant second in comparison to him. The cost of being his follower means that uh, you need to 
be willing to carry any burden that he might live you, give you as you go through life. It means that like a man who is building a tower, you had better assess carefully whether you have the resources to complete what you start. Otherwise, like that man, you'll be called a quitter. And like a, a, a king going out to war who stirs up conflict with a neighboring kingdom, you had better assess in advance whether you have the power to do what it is you've set out to do or you're going to be called a loser. And then he ends with a simple, uh, concise statement that is a summary of the whole thing. That's what I want to focus on this morning. Verse 33, Luke chapter 14. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. It's quite an astounding demand. And uh, the context in which Jesus made that demand is astounding as well. You'll note that it begins in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, this is the cost of discipleship. What makes that surprising is that it's one of uh, only two places, I think, found in the Gospels where Jesus said something like this to the multitudes. Usually his messages to the multitudes were quite different. And when you read the kinds of things in here about counting the cost of discipleship, they're usually in the Gospels found in the context of Jesus training his closest followers. And with the 12 apostles, he would, in the context of their relationship, reveal to them throughout the Gospels what it was really going to mean to be his follower. But what we have in this passage is the crowds. And he makes crystal clear to everyone, from little children who were sitting there to casual listeners who were dragged there by their wife, to the most ardent believer, to the religious opposition that were always present in the crowds. He made it clear to everyone as though he were saying, let me roll back the curtain and give you a panoramic view of what this whole thing is about, what I came to do, and what's going to happen to you if you decide to be my follower. If you become my follower, I am going to ask you to give up your own agenda in life, your hopes and dreams for what you would like to see happen I'm going to tell you to set those aside and take up my agenda. And that is a breathtaking requirement. The, the breadth of Jesus' demand should sober you. In fact, it might even stun you. Now, for three weeks, what we want to do is we want to sort of unpack this statement and think about what it means and how we experience it. I want to think specifically about stewardship and within that, about financial stewardship. Sometimes we use the word stewardship, and, and people don't know exactly what we're talking about because it's a general word that was used in our society that has pretty much come down to being something they talk about in churches. But stewardship simply means management. It, it describes how you manage all of the things in your life. And we want to think particularly about financial stewardship, how you manage the financial area of your life. And this is uh, uh, something we planned into the preaching calendar months ago. And it happens that it's a great time for me to bring this up. There's two reasons. One reason why this is a great time to talk about this is simply that um, we're doing really well financially. I don't know if you looked in the worship folder, but it's like we're way ahead of where we need to be at this point in the year. 
So nobody should harbor any suspicion that the old man's bringing it up because we desperately need money. And the second reason is it's just an incredibly important area of life. I mean, Jesus himself said that how we manage our financial resources is like a window into our heart. It tells us a great deal about what we are like and what we truly value inside. And that's why I've often said with uh, only a little bit of humor that uh, people will talk more easily about their sex lives than they will about their financial state. Now, I want to think about this for a few weeks, and in order to make the demand that Jesus is presenting here more understandable, I've come up with two statements that are meant to kind of summarize what this is all about. The first one we might call a conviction, and the second one is a resolution. The conviction says, this is true. The conviction says, so this is what I'm going to do because it's true. First, the conviction. Jesus' discipleship demand might be worded this way. Everything I am and everything I have is from God and belongs to God, and I am simply the manager of it. Now, obviously, if you're ever going to respond to the call that Jesus makes, therefore, any one of you who does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. If you're ever going to respond to that, you have to start at this point. That is a recognition that everything you are and everything you have belongs to God. And I mean everything you are, which includes uh, my liabilities as well as my abilities, my gifts, my temperament, my struggles, the physical assets that I have, my personality with its assets that people enjoy and its quirks that drive them crazy. All of those things, everything that I am, God has so shaped to make me the person I am right now. He has either actively done things or allowed influences to come in my life that have made me what I am, and that belongs to God. Assets and liabilities. And the same thing's true of everything that I have, whether I earned it myself, or I earned it by investing money, or I inherited it, or I acquired it in some other way. However I got that, it all belongs to God. It's like the old saying, you can't take it with you. If you've never seen a hearse pulling a U-Haul. That's the first thing. And based on that conviction, there's a resolution that would come out of this for a person if they were going to obey this. And the resolution would go something like this. Therefore, I am going to manage everything I have been given in life in order to honor God and maximize my impact for the gospel. Now, what would it be like for you to actually do that? What would it be like for you to choose from the heart to live by this conviction and its corresponding resolution? What would need to happen for you to feel that this demand is, in fact, a gracious invitation from the king of the universe to live for him, and it would be in your best interest? What would it be like for you to adopt the words that the great martyr missionary Jim Elliott wrote down when he went to Ecuador where he was martyred in the 1950s about this passage. He wrote, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. What would it be like for you to, to do that? Well, I think there's three things that would have to happen we want to think about for a few minutes. The first thing is, you must experience the relationship that Jesus extends to you. 
The second thing is you must understand the commitment that Jesus requires of you. And thirdly, you must make the choices that Jesus directs you to make. I want to think about those three things for a few minutes together. First, in order to respond to Jesus' words, you need to begin to experience the relationship that Jesus extends to you. God is far above and beyond anything you could ever imagine. In fact, one of the things that ought to happen by participating in the worship services and the small groups of a church is that your understanding of God should be continually expanded so that you realize that the true God, the living God, is far greater than anything you could ever think. That it's, it's beyond comprehension why he would pay any attention to things like us. And yet, at the same time that he is greater than our greatest thoughts, the Bible is filled with information to help us know that he longs to be close to us and to draw us into relationship with himself. And he's, uh, the word used is accommodation. He's accommodated himself to our human understanding. It's like he's stooped down to speak to us using words and images that we can understand and grab onto and experience. So so, uh, perhaps the greatest way in which the Bible speaks of God, tells us what God is like, is it reveals him as Father. Now, Father is a uh, title that's used in the Old Testament twice as God being the Father of the whole people of God. But in the New Testament, there's a great advance on that, where Jesus says, we as individual believers who come to God through Jesus, we can call God our Father. And from that rich image, I believe, we're we're meant to draw all kinds of information that help us to experience what it means to have a relationship with the unseen God. Because the word Father carries with it a, a certain idea that most people have in their minds. It's an idea that we have whether or not our earthly father was very good at matching up to it. Even if he wasn't, we still retain this idea of what fatherhood means. And in the word father, we invest a sense of strong, committed, directive love. Strong, committed, directive love. None of us had a father that perfectly represented that. And if you're a father, you're going to soon find out that you won't embody that perfectly either. But none of that keeps us human beings from having a clear idea of that's what it means when God reveals himself as father. And there's a corresponding thing on our side that it's meant to evoke from us a certain kind of emotion and relationship with God. And those are feelings of security and respect and submission to his authority and his guidance. It's perhaps the richest image the Bible gives to us, but it's not the only one. What about um, mother? It is true that in the Bible, never, uh, God is never called mother, and we are not encouraged to call God mother as we are uh, to call him father. However, in both the Old Testament and the New Testament, he reveals himself as being like a mother. And again, that is meant to draw out of us a sense of what a mother represents, this image of fiercely protective and sacrificial, self-giving love. And and we are meant to feel as a result of that, that sense of sanctuary 
and safekeeping and well-being like no other image could than the image of mother. And, and the Bible is filled with these images of God. We can think of things like king and prophet and savior. All of those are, are meant to create for us an understanding that that is not literally what God is. God is not a father in the sense that we understood understand fatherhood. Father is an earthly relationship in which God says, this is close to. If you will understand this and experience it and think of it in a perfect way, you will experience what it means to have a relationship with me. That is what I'm like. Now, what about this passage? This passage ends with these uh, words. So, therefore, any one of you who does not renounce, give up, all that he has cannot be my disciple. Well, uh, the Lord is revealing something about himself, and he's revealing something about us. And you might think of it as owner and manager. That's the kind of relationship that's set up here. Thankfully, that's not everything that's said about God, but it's an image that we're meant to use and understand. There's something about our relationship with God in which God is the owner, and we are to be astounded by the breadth of his ownership, the vastness of his wealth, which in fact includes everything that there is. That belongs to God. And we are managers. That's an arrangement we understand in life. We know people who are given the management of something. There's an owner, perhaps, who owns all kinds of resources, and this one person is appointed to manage this business. Now, that person may make a good living managing the business, but the truth is the resources don't belong to him, and if he leaves the job tomorrow, he doesn't take the resources with him. He only takes what he's earned up to that point. And so... This is the image this is meant to evoke. But we have to add one element to it. It's not simply the simple owner management thing. But the first thing is this. Unlike a person who, say, works at a bank and manages other people's money but doesn't take it home with her or him, unlike that, the resources that you and I are called to manage include us. Like I said, it's the assets that we are and that we have, everything belongs to God, our temperament, personality, and so forth, our wounds from the past, our hopes for the future, our strengths, and all of the physical resources that we might accumulate as we go through life, all of that belongs to God, and we are called to manage it. And that's what's behind this statement that Jesus is saying. Now, God does not reveal himself simply so we would understand him. He doesn't even reveal himself simply so we would respect or reverence him, though that is greatly true, he reveals himself so that we would experience him. And that's why it uses all of these images so that we might find evoked in ourselves these feelings that we respond to and we understand God is a father in the perfect sense of the word. God is like a mother and everything that that means. God is like a king and, and all of that. We're called to put the full picture in mind, that's why God gives to us the Bible, he gives to us his Holy Spirit, and he gives to us the fellowship of God's people so that as we move through life, we can, in a maximized way, pull out of those things all the resources that we need, grow this understanding and image of God with all of the parts that are present in the Bible and respond to that. So first, you have to experience the relationship Jesus Gives. That, that's, that's why in the Bible, as I said in the Gospels, 
Jesus usually uses these words, these calls to discipleship, with those who were close to him, who were following him. And, and he uses these words to draw them into a deeper relationship with him in which they would give themselves more and more to him. So first, you have to experience the relationship Jesus extends, but that's not all. You also have to understand the commitment that Jesus is requiring here. Understand the, the commitment he asked for when he says, so therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now, it's very important in life not to confuse the free gift of salvation with the requirements of discipleship. Those two things in the Bible, salvation and discipleship, are intimately related to one another. They fit together in a certain way. And the way that you understand what they mean and how they fit together is going to determine, and to a great degree, your own experience of the Christian faith. But first, forgiveness of sins, relationship with God, eternal life are a free gift from God that are given when a person trusts in Christ and Christ alone. Uh, I'm not sure how much clearer Jesus could make that fact than when he says in the Gospel of John in the sixth chapter, most assuredly I say to you, whoever believes in me has eternal life. I mean, it's a very simple statement. There's no renouncing there. There's no giving anything. There's only receiving Obviously, it understands what the in me means. It's not, you know, just a historical person, but that has a content. What does it mean to believe in him? But it's very simple. Whoever believes in me, trusts in me, has eternal life. Now, it's uh, easy to see that there's quite a difference between that and this statement at the end of chapter 14 of the Gospel of Luke, where he says, so therefore, any one of you does not give up everything that he has cannot be my disciple. So what is the relationship between these two things? Well, Jesus and the apostles never present the truth as though these are two completely separate experiences, like you can receive the free gift of eternal life, and once you've done that, you're going to face another choice in life, and that choice is going to be, do you want to follow him or not? They never present it that way. That would be kind of like saying uh, to your child, when you're teaching him or her not to play in the street, okay, here's the street, here's the yard. I'd like you, and I think it would be better for you to stay in the yard, but it's up to you. You know, you want to play in the street? Go ahead. No one would do that. That would be a poor kind of parenting because what we expect from the child to whom we've given life and in whom we've placed our life, we expect them to begin to live out that life in a healthy way. And so the requirements of being a child in the family become evident as time goes on in the same way Jesus and the New Testament and the apostles consistently present discipleship as the natural and logical outcome of receiving life from God. You have eternal life, it's like a seed inside of you, it says in the Bible. It's like something that grows up and it produces fruit. Now, that growing up, you can picture it almost as though it's, it's happening automatically, but that's not quite true either. Because we also find in the Bible, on the other hand, that a Christian is able to fail to obey God. A person can fail in their discipleship, at least in points in time, and in the same way that there are consequences for uh, disobeying parents, 
there are consequences in the heavenly realm for disobeying God himself as well in relationship with him. But they're, they're related to one another, but they can be distinguished. And um, some people think, well, that, isn't that kind of a bait and switch? Like you preachers, you know, one week you're saying, it's a free gift. And the next week you're saying, but you've got to give everything. Well, I don't, I don't think so. And the reason I don't is that the way in which Jesus taught this truth, generally speaking, and the way in which you find it laid out in the New Testament is based on an image that's important. And it's the image, the idea that is central to understanding the Christian faith, the idea of being born again. Jesus said to a famous rabbi, Nicodemus, you must be born again. And what he was saying is that like a physical birth in which you receive life from your parents as a free gift, you don't ask for it or earn it or deserve it, in the same way, if you will ever do anything for God, if you ever want to live a life of discipleship, the place you have to start is by being born spiritually. You must be born a second time, not just physically, but spiritually. And in the same way that parents give life to their children as a gift by their own will, in the same way God causes us to be born again by an action of his own will in which he places that life inside of our soul. Yes, it's when we come to trust in Christ, but the Bible says even that faith is something that God grants to us, enables us to do, so that when we trust in Christ, we are responding to God's free gift. And and that's really important to understand. That's the basis of the Christian life, receiving this life. But he says to Nicodemus, if you had ever lived for God, that's what discipleship is, you have to receive life from God. And that's how the truth is presented. Now, as a child grows up in a family, the responsibilities of adulthood begin to become more evident as time goes on. So you can imagine, I remember when our eldest daughter at one point, she might have been eight or nine, Uh, came to Laura and said, "Um, Mom, I love you, and I don't ever want to leave home. I want to always stay here with you and Dad. Would that be okay? Well, I'm not sure what Laura said, but you might have had that experience, a child saying that. Now, what's going on inside of her? Well, what is going on is that, let's say she's eight, and she's had a brief life, but she's able to look back, and she looks back and realizes, you know, once I was four and I was smaller, and had less responsibility, and then I was five, and now I'm eight, and I'm bigger, and they're actually expecting things out of me in school, you know, and things like that. And, and it, it kind of clicks, oh, this keeps going on. It, it keeps going on, and there's going to be a point where I'm going to be an adult, and what she's trying to do, she no, no person could articulate this, but it's like this fear inside, it makes her say, I want to stop. I just want to be able to live at home with mom and dad and be a child for the rest of my life. Now, if you're an unhealthy parent, what you do with that is you remind them of it regularly. Remember, you're not going to grow up. You're just going to be a child. You're going to be the one that takes care of mommy when she's old. Not healthy. I wouldn't suggest doing that. Not good for the child. You know, people aren't going to do that. But we also don't hide the fact that life involves growing up. But what we do is we treat a five-year-old like a five-year-old, and we expect a five-year-old level of responsibility. And 10 years old, the same, and 15 and 20, because all of those are stages that are preparing them for adulthood in which we let go entirely and they move out and they live on their own. Now, thankfully, God treats us the same way, the Bible says. All we need to know in life about the Christian life and about discipleship, God doesn't require of us all at once. Even in this saying, 
He doesn't tell any individual, this is what renouncing all and following me will mean in your life. But it also doesn't mean that we don't grasp that that's what it's all about. And so as we learn from this picture, from this passage, Jesus doesn't hide it. He doesn't pretend that that's not true. It's like he pulls back the curtain. He says, now, what this whole thing is about is you, everything about you. I want everything. I want you to give up, ultimately, everything that you are, reputation, possessions, relationships, and I want you to accept my agenda for your life. Now, what people find out when they do that is they find out that many of the hopes and dreams they harbored are part of Jesus' agenda. And in his own timing, he gives them to you. They find out that other things that they harbored as hopes and dreams for their own life weren't that good anyways, and they're glad they didn't come to pass. And they also find out that Jesus has for us all sorts of things that he wants us to do, some of which are painful and some of which are glorious, that will make us the kind of people we truly want to be inside. But that's what discipleship is all about. So what we've said is that you have to first experience the relationship that Jesus extends in all of its fullness. And then we've said you have to understand the commitment that Jesus asks, that he is asking for all of you. And the third thing you need to do is you need to make the choices that he directs you to make. The fact is, the choices that we make, we don't make all at once. But like life in general, as it unfolds, we're required to make a number of choices as we move through life. And the point is to keep those choices moving in a direction in which he is given first place. So again, he pulls back the curtain. He gives everyone a glimpse. It's not just about going to heaven when you die. It's not just about being happy, though ultimately you will find your greatest happiness when God is glorified the most. But it's not just about that. It's so that we don't get any idea that the Christian faith involves some kind of secret truth that people who really decide to follow him and become disciples, they really experience that, but the rest of us are kind of left on the outside because we made lesser choices. So we don't think that there's something hidden and there's any bait and switch involved in it. He gives us this kind of passage where he says from the beginning to anyone who would listen, this is really what I'm all about. I'm about capturing people for God. Everything that people are and everything that they have. So let me do that for just a minute. Let me speak to what our church is about. You might come in on Sunday and think, well, I, I like the preacher. He seems to be a pretty nice guy. He doesn't beat on the pulpit and sweat visibly <laughs> and yell. You know, it's not demanding. Well, let me just pull back the curtain for a minute and say, what is it that the elders and the pastors, when we meet, what do we pray about? What do we think about? What do we dream about wanting to see? Well, I have to tell you, it's not just programs that work well and buildings and keeping the lights on and volunteers, that kind of thing. It's not just that. We want God to so capture your hearts that you willingly submit to his rule. 
and you walk confidently into the future knowing that whatever comes into your life comes from God's fatherly hand and not because it was a mistake or an error or he was looking the other way. And, and we want God to so rule in your life that instead of playing in the shallow water where it's safe, you step out where it's deeper and it gets over your head and you start to dream of things you'd like to do for God, things that are beyond your present resources and powers. We'd like to see God so capture your hearts that you um, step outside your comfort zone and many of you start to do things that, that God is prompting you to do but you're keeping away from it like leading a small group or teaching a Sunday school class or whatever it is so that we can expand our ministry into the lives of more people. We'd like God to so capture your hearts that you even take stock of everything that you have and you make the very difficult choices to reorganize your life financially. If you're like most Americans, and there's no reason to think that churches are not made up of a cross-section of Americans when it comes to this, if you're like most, your financial life is in a bit of disarray. And, and you'll seek to reorganize that and make the difficult decisions that you need to make in order to straighten that out so that you can give more money to God and his purposes. In fact, we'd like to think that we would be in a place where we have so much money as a church that when people call needing help in the community, which happens two or three times every week, or when we find out about someone within the church family who is really struggling, that we won't have to look at the checkbook and make sure that we have a certain amount of money that we're trying to maintain. We'll be able to give it away in God's purposes more freely. And we want to be able to take on more responsibilities as a church to shepherd our children into discipleship and, and send teens on mission trips and young adults and to draw more people in faith and to faith in Christ and to, to finish the lobby and all of those things and to start churches like we've done in the past in various parts of the communities around us in the world. I mean, that's what we would really like to do. And we would like to happen not because anyone badgered you, but because God captured your heart. And the only way that's ever going to come about is if you listen to these words of Jesus and you personally apply them to yourself. So therefore, any one of you who does not give up all that he has cannot be my disciple. I mean, what he asks you to do is take everything that you are and everything that you have and to turn it this way so that you're ready to drop it whenever he asks because it belongs to him. Let's pray that that will be the case. Again, our gracious Father, we thank you that you are far above and beyond anything that we could ever imagine. It's, it's so life-giving for us when we stop thinking in the paltry terms that the world seems to think about God. We don't even think of you as the man upstairs or something like that. We, we understand that you call us into relationship with the God who thought and spoke into existence everything that there is. And in one eternal act decreed everything that will ever come to pass. It's beyond our comprehension to think that. And yet you 
desire that we would experience a relationship with you in which you become our father and we are your children in which you are our Lord and we are your people we want to experience that but we know that within that what you seek to do in our lives is to capture us and we pray that you would do that in fact more and more as we move through life as our church moves forward and in groups and meetings and worship services as we come to you and seek you we pray that you would by your spirit make all of those hopes and dreams effective and that you would so move inside of each person who makes this their church family that we would find ourselves being drawn deeper into you and we would find ourselves longing to reflect that more as we walk in our pilgrimage through this world.